Good morning, Paul. Good morning, John Asalko. So today is Friday, 7th of May, 2021. And today there's a question that was asked about times when someone makes a statement that one disagrees with. What is the difference between reacting versus responding to such a statement? Well, reaction is, is a very conditioned uh, re re reaction to something you either pleasant or unpleasant. So, uh, you know, when somebody says something we don't like or disagree with, uh, have strong views about, and then we're aware that, that, of the immediate reaction we have, uh, which can be very, uh, create more problems than, than before. Where response is where we note, note the reaction and we don't follow it. And we patiently observe, you know, a response to this situation either through not saying anything or just acknowledging I've heard you and, and in a kind of way that you aren't creating a, a, an immediate problem with an argument and, and a quarrel about what you think is right and what somebody else think is right. So, you know, it's just learning to be patient and know, know your reactions. Uh, when somebody says something you disagree with, and so it may be a very strong reaction of you're all wrong, you've got it all wrong, you're an idiot, which would be <laughs> very, you know, uh, would be a, a, a reaction that many of us feel sometimes <laughs> when we hear things we don't agree with, but uh, not to speak on it. But to be aware of it. And as you trust your awareness, then the response comes quite naturally, either through just being silent or responding in a way that isn't argumentative or, or insulting to the person whose view you object to. So it's uh, like in training as a monk, we all have about right speech, you know, is one of the training rules that we have. And, and so we, we do have reactions to, uh, to uh, things we very strongly disagree with or don't like, or to people who we, we find obnoxious. Uh, and I found that just by following these reactions, I create more problems. And uh, so I've trained myself to be aware of the reaction, not to to recognize that the, the mentally, you know, this happens when somebody says something this way, I feel this reaction is like this. But then as I trust my awareness, I can respond to to the situation in a skillful way that doesn't create more problems than there were before. I guess one of the things that comes up in these situations is a sense of uh, self-righteousness. That's a 
something that we all can relate to. Can you say something about that? Yes, it's uh, being right and wrong. Uh, when we absolutize, when we when we make right and wrong into absolute moral absolutes, then we're we're stuck with a position. And uh, reflecting on the way things are, right and wrong are are conditions that arise and cease. They're not absolutes. Nobody's absolutely right and, and or absolutely wrong. But, you know, these are relative to time and place. And so, you know, one finds in in daily life, in religious communities, or anywhere, the, the righteous indignation can be a very strong reaction to, to what, to things we feel are wrong and sinful and evil and, and the desire to destroy and, and uh, wipe out the evil forces in the universe can sound very righteous and, and, uh, and in, in one way it's right, but it, it's impossible. You know, on ideal level, goodness is the best and, <laughs> and evil is the worst. And so we're, we're saddled with, with this dualistic language that we think in, which is if you've got right, then then the opposite is wrong. If you've got good, you've got bad. Heaven, you've got hell. And the, the mindful re response to, to righteousness is to be aware of, of one own, one's sense of, I'm right and you're wrong. <clears throat> in, in spiritual practice, and in any religion, there's a strong sense of righteousness. Like, we all are trained in the early years of monastic training to, to know the right re reactions to speech and action and, uh, what's wrong, what's, what's evil, what's a sin, what's a, an offense. And so we're, we're trained very thoroughly in the, in these, you know, what's right and what's, what isn't. Uh, and so then we tend to cling to having very strong views of righteous views about our life and can be quite insensitive to time and place uh, because uh, this clinging to views uh, blinds us to the realities of the here and now, the time, the place, the people we're with, the situation that we're, we're experiencing is like this. And so that's where mindfulness is our ability to reflect on this. What is, what is it like to feel righteous? You know, to feel I'm right, absolutely right. You know, and when you start looking at that particular mood or state of mind, it, you know, it is a, it is a lot of suffering to always have to be right and said, everyone else right by preaching at them, by telling them how they should behave and what's right. And if they don't agree, they're wrong. This can be, you know, people of this nature are really quite uh, offensive, even though they, they, they have right intentions. 
They, they don't have mindfulness or wisdom to know the time and place and to recognize their own attachment to the views about righteousness. And this is a very important issue because we're all conditioned in, in this way to, to hold strong views about the, the left side of the political spectrum or the right side. And in the mass media and daily news, you hear all these strong views about the, the right side, the, the conservative side or the liberal left side. And each, each side has its own strong position to take. And, uh, you know, both uh, take very righteous positions. But with wisdom, we, we can reflect on that in our own experience with life as we live our lives. You know, we, we, we're going to feel right and wrong the same as anyone else. But wisdom is aware of this feeling is a condition we create. And, and if we just react out of just our own righteousness, sometimes we, we can be very offensive, very insensitive to the situation, the people, the conditions that we're experiencing in the present. And as we are mindful, we let go of our sense of righteousness and then we can respond in a, in a suitable way, in a way that is right to the conditions of the present situation. So remember that ex that we experience always in the present moment is here. The place is always here. The time is always now. And, and the people we're with are the way they are. You know, we can't just be with people who agree with everything we say or think or feel. <clears throat> we have to live in a society with many different views, many different opinions, uh, many different characters that we like or don't like, appreciate or don't appreciate. But, and so what, what are we going to do in a, in a maelstrom of change and, and confusion between right and wrong, good and bad, acceptance, unacceptance, except witness to it. You know, this is the path of wisdom where we reflect and observe and, and we learn from ourselves, our own grasping of righteousness. Uh, is, is, is that really peaceful? It, do, do you always have to be right? Do you, you know, do you find your relationships with others very, uh, unfulfilling because that even the people close to you aren't always agreeing with you. You feel at odds with the world because it doesn't fit your sense of righteousness and what's, what should be. And, and you can be aware of this grasping of views of being right or being wrong and, and see that it's the grasping that's the problem. And the, the, the solution is to let go of righteousness. That doesn't mean destroying it. It means to release your grip on it, your total identity with it, and trust in awareness, trust in Dhamma, trust in the reality of this moment, 
to respond to uh, particular difficult situations you, you're experiencing. You mentioned how self-righteousness comes in with views, whether it's religious views or political views. There's another type of dynamic, just more social dynamic. Like we can see in monasteries, such as here, between people, individuals, or small groups of people, but in families as well, when we think someone is not behaving, they should be behaving, or they're not the way we think they should be, and we can find ourselves feeling very self-righteous about they should be otherwise. And this can create a lot of disharmony in, in, in either monasteries between individuals, but also in families between brothers and sisters, children and parents. Yes, we... In a monastery like here in Amravati, you have a real opportunity to observe. You know, we all... All bhikkhus know what a proper bhikkhu should be according to the ideal. You know, and, you know, and lay people hold it, project all kinds of righteous views onto us, you know, the, you know, about being perfectly kind and, and wise and good and moral and just. And these are all right, you know, good, good projections. <clears throat> and then when they see us not living up to their, their standards of, excellence, then they become disillusioned. Or the monks, if we we make judgments, value judgments about other monks, you know, we we aren't being aware of what we're doing. You know, when you try to, even though this particular form of Buddhism is very conforming, we shave our heads, wear the same color of robes, keep, you know, the same standard of moral discipline, the Vinaya, so on the externals, you've got incredible conformity. So that, you know, is the standard that we agree to when we enter this, this particular convention. But mentally, we're, we're all different. You know, different characters, different genders, different uh, cultural identities, national identities, different racial identities, all these identities that, that uh, we hold to are going to be all different. There's no two monks, two nuns the same. You know, you can't have carbon copies of... Uh, monks or nuns, you know, and we aren't ideals. We're not images of, of perfection like a Buddha Rupa is. But a Rupa, Buddha Rupa doesn't feel anything. You know, we've got these beautiful images of the Buddha on our shrines, and but they don't see, hear, smell, taste, touch. They, they don't have blood flowing through their veins or nervous systems or they don't get hungry or have any fun bodily functions to deal with, they can be perfect images, their ideals are beautiful, but recognize the realities of, of the human form is like this. It's not an ideal form. It's a changing condition. 
and and the changes, the personalities, the views, the the sense of uh, uh, an isolated self, a gender identity, a religious identity, a class identity can all be very different from one being to the next. And the, the, the differences of sankharas, of conditions, of phenomena that, that are changing. And so when we take the position of a, of a separate personality, with strong views about right and wrong and, uh, and holding to ideal views about how the world should be or uh, how a good monk or a good nun should be, then uh, we're going to be constantly frustrated because that's not the way life happens and that's not the way monasteries really operate. So we learn, you know, I've learned so much being the abbot of a monastery where, where you, you know, you have an ideal for what the monastery should be when you start. And then you just have to deal with life as it happens, that different personalities, different characters ordain or ask to come and live in the monastery and they aren't always agreeable or, you know, don't fit in with, with my personal views about how someone should be. I can observe that. I can observe my own prejudices that arise or condition reactions to individuals as it happens. And that, then that's a, a wisdom response to the, the confusing situations of, of the samsara, of the changing conditions that we strongly identify with. And therefore the encouragement to seek the identity with ultimate reality, with Dhamma. We take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha rather than in personal views and ideals that can be very different or, or very perfect in many ways uh, from one person to the next. But in, the, in, the, in these terms of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, they're, they're not personal terms. We don't, I, we don't think we're Buddhas. We don't say we're Dhammas. We can say we're Sanghas and some perfect view of a Sangha and perfect harmony practicing meditation together is an ideal. But the reality of living together as a Sangha of monastics is like this. And we begin to open wide to the way life is and happens rather than and seeing life through the narrow view of my view is right and and I've got to make the rest of the world conform to what I think is right is is you know a definite uh, invitation to make your life utterly miserable for the rest of your life <laughs> because life isn't going to allow that to happen you know we learn as we grow older too as we lose our idealistic attachments and open to life as, as a changing reality that, that, that we can witness to and learn from rather than uh, trying to transform it and change it according to our own narrow views of right and wrong. 
and then within sort of more family dynamics between the same with families mm. you know how many parents suffer because their children aren't what aren't behaving them <laughs> and how many children suffer because their parents don't seem to understand them or they think they don't you know because children <clears throat> Are in you know they've got their own karmic conditions to deal with. They're not going to be exactly what the ideal children you imagine before they're born. You know the idea I imagine when you get married of having a family. You have you know ideal girls and boy children, and uh, and they fit into your pattern of you know ideal ideal personalities. And you worry, you know, you can worry, parents worry about their children endlessly because they may not conform to their ideal of what's considered normal in a society. Because like every society has its, what consider, you know, its ideal of normality. But what is normality? Is it an ideal? You know, is, is, you know, we can have a very strict view of what's a normal, boy or a normal girl, but it's still a viewpoint. And boys and girls grow up, you know, as individuals with their own particular karmic inheritance, whatever that might be. And it may not be what you expected or wanted, you know, because, the, you know, you, you in the news, the media, mass media, you read about all kinds of problems arising in families because of uh, transgender children or trans uh, homophobic parents and things like this because this is, these are the views that, of normality that the society or the parents are holding to. Uh, and so, you know, what do you do when, when your children don't conform to the way what you believe is right, you can observe that. You know, I, do you have to be right? Do you have to uh, impose on your children your own views uh, and and make them feel guilty or unwanted or rejected because they don't conform to an idea you have of what a normal boy or girl should be? You know, in wisdom, wisdom practice, we, we can observe this. We all have our biases that are conditioned, our cultural conditioning, social conditioning, uh, you get when you're an innocent child, you know, you get that from your parents, from your family, from the class that you're born into. Your racial identity is very defined. Your, uh, you know, the absolute, uh, holding to views about gender, uh, you know, are, are very part of a cultural conditioning process. But are they always right or always, or, or is it wrong, you know, or the right and wrong relative to conditions, to time and place? So in a family, you know, like in, in, in a family must learn from the way their children are, uh, children must learn from the way their parents are, not to to expect your parents to be the <clears throat> perfect, ideal parents that you can imagine. But parents 
are working out their karma too, you know, whatever that might be. Because the conditioned realm is all about karma, it's about cause and effect, about birth and death, about conditioning that, that you receive through the sense of a separate self and uh, personal identity, through cultural conditioning, through social, religious conditioning, you all, we're all conditioned to, to hold to certain views that are part of, considered normal and right in, in a particular cultural setting. And they don't always fit into other cultural settings. For those of us who have lived in different cultures, it's very interesting to, to observe, you know, just coming from the West Coast United States to live in a Thai forest monastery, the totally different cultural, uh, culture and the conditioning of Thai culture and Thai monasticism was completely strange to a West Coast youthful American. So, you know, it, it did mirror my own particular uh, attitudes and reactions to living within a society that, that reacted very different to many, to many of the things that, that I experienced. But not everyone has the good fortune to live in different cultures, but we can learn from the culture we're in to realize it is conditioned. Patriotism, nationalism, class identity are all conditioned into us when we're young. You know, as part of a, a, a plan, a cultural plan, an agreed agreement among masses of people that uh, their particular culture is, is this way. And that other cultures that don't quite fit into their ideal forms are inferior or we can be very, uh, condescending or arrogant or conceited in regarding our own views about right and wrong and what's, what's normal and what is abnormal. But what is normal? What is, what is ultimately normal without a, a view of normality is awareness, is consciousness itself. It's completely normal because you know, when you're born, you're born conscious. A, a newborn infant is, is, is a fully conscious form before it becomes a personality, before it has a cultural identity, before it has a language. So this is, this is, you know, using the word normality and not seeing it as the status quo of a, of a particular class or social identity or racial identity, but see normality, we all share whatever our personality, our cultural identity might be, no matter how eccentric or conforming it might be to particular situations, where ultimately everyone's normal and <laughs> And that is what we begin to re recognize. And then we learn to expand our acceptance of the differences in, in character tendencies and, 
in inherited tendencies and in gender identities and so forth, we begin to to no longer hold to a fixed view of what's normal and what isn't, because we no longer have a view about it. We we know we know through wisdom normality is like this. It's awareness, it's mindfulness. And then the eccentricities, the strangeness, the madness, the 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 abnormalities, as well as the conformities and and the all the other mental conditions are acquired, are conditioned, and and so we learn to understand them. They are what they are. They arise, they cease, they're sankars, they're phenomena that are changing, and not a, a solid, real person, but the, the conditions that one uh, individuals are experiencing are cannot be exactly the same from one individual to the other. So you become, you know, this is a way of spreading metta, of loving kindness, of accepting life, of rather than just trying to make life conform to your own particular narrow position on it, of some ideal that you hold vastly to, and, and believe in totally without question, without mindfulness, without wisdom. Thank you very much.